Everybody, this is Charlie from Anthrax, and you are listening to today's Boondoggle. This is Mark Metcalf, and you are listening to today's Boondoggle with Bailey and Domain Cleveland Radio. You are listening to today's Boondoggle with Bailey on Domain Cleveland Radio. Yes, Kato Kalen listens to this all the time. Rise again, 311, Cedar, Mudvan, many more. May 16th through the 19th, Columbus, Ohio. Tickets on sale now at SonicTempleFestival.com. What's going on, everybody? It's Bill Bailey with today's Boondoggle. And real quick housekeeping note, if you're watching us on YouTube or BitChute or Rumble or Odyssey, please hit that follow and subscribe button. And if you're uh, listening to us on Spotify or Apple, Google, whatever podcast platform you utilize, please hit that follow and subscribe button uh, so we can continue to bring you conversations like the one I'm about to bring you today. I'm uh, very, very excited about uh, today's interview. I know I've been I've been blessed to have a lot of really cool uh, people on here with some amazing stories and some conversations, but uh, um this man right here, I've had the pleasure of getting to know uh, for the past several years. And every time we talk, uh, he's a huge inspiration on my life. And I'm, I'm blessed to call him a friend today. Uh, my friend, Mr. Tommy Hollenstein. How you doing, Tommy? Good. How you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, so, Tommy, you know, uh, usually when I have people on for the first time, I like to, uh, you know, get a quick background uh, but uh, do you remember like what you originally wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, uh, at what age? <laughs> yeah, like as, I mean, as a little kid. The lowest age was probably a popsicle man, you know, <laughs> just a kid. You know, yeah. my dad was in the restaurant business, so I always kind of thought I'd fall into the restaurant business for quite a few years. Okay. And then like when was it where, uh, you know, like uh, art started uh, calling you? Well, you know, I was always into art since I was a kid. I, was, I mean, since four or five years old, I was creating and doing stuff um, with my hands, you know, whether it was drawing, painting, and then getting into building, you know, bicycles, BMX bicycles, tearing, taking them down, tearing them apart, reupholstering the seats and stuff like that, making custom paint colors, changing the paints every month or whatever. Um, and then uh, in the elementary school, then I started, you know, they started allowing me to paint backgrounds for the plays and different things. And then I got into, you know, making custom skateboards and just, and then once I had some uh, VW vans, I was doing all the woodwork and that, and just always doing something creative with my hands, you know. Um, nice. 
Yeah, so it's always been kind of like a calling of yours. It was. It was, you know. But uh, and, I never uh, really, very, I mean, I thought maybe we'd have a future at it, but then, you know, I forget which teacher, fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, said, no, art's a hobby, you know. You got to pick a career. So at that point, you know, how am I going to get my parents to ever pay for art school? So I just kind of was always keeping it on the side, all the way to school and stuff through school. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny. Even people that with that with the best intentions, how they can you know kind of disrupt going for your pursuing our dreams. You know, as a, as a kid, you know, we can either have a positive uh, influence that encourages you, no matter how far out it sounds. But you know, I the same dealt with the same kind of stuff. Like you know, when I was a kid, I I was uh, I used to like record on a cassette tape, like make my own shows. I was inspired by Johnny Carson and the tonight show and stuff like having interviews and stuff like, like this. And, you know, my parents are like, well, you, you know, so I thought about getting into radio and stuff like that. And they're like, nah, you need to get a real nine to five. And, you know, yeah. you know, with the best intentions, you know, but now here I am, you know, 50 years old, finally getting to, you know, do what I wanted to do as a kid. All right. But uh, you're also like a big fan of music and everything. And what was like uh, some of your early influences in music? I mean, what was it? Uh, well, for first, probably Led Zeppelin. Well, I mean, early, even before that, Beach Boys. Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, uh, Eagles, David Bowie, uh, The Who. Uh, a lot of rock. You know, yeah. And then you had mentioned like putting together like BMX uh, bikes and, and stuff as part of your like uh, creative side growing up. But, uh, you know, I'd read that you were involved in like, uh, you know, kind of more like the ex extreme sports types. And, and you know, you said uh, skateboard decks and stuff like that. And then you even did uh, surfing and everything, correct? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, the first thing I got into was a BMX and a BMX rice, racing BMX bicycles. I mean, out here, you know, Canoga Park next to Reseda is where BMX really first got started. We were building the first bikes, really, you know, going down the Midas Muffler and, you know, cutting off parts of the sissy bar and making crossbars and, and, and you know, re redoing the frames and all kinds of different things. And then BMX started to take off pretty good. And then once I grew out of that, then I went to skateboarding, got really into skateboarding, and I would take a wood shop in summer school, and I'd start making custom wood skateboards. And I got into competing in that, and... uh you know, I mean, I've still got some of my old stickers and some old stuff from the 70s, you know, uh, uh, back when it was first really getting started. You know, skate across, and there's a place called Toilet Bowl by my house, which was a, a big a drainage ditch that uh, it was first some of the first uh, type pool type type stuff, pool skating type stuff. And then I got into surfing in eighth grade. Once I discovered surfing and started going every weekend and that was really my passion, my, my, my love. You know, I got to comp, you know, competing with WSA, then NSSA in college, and uh, I served for Pepperdine's team. And I moved to Newport Beach when I went to Orange Coast College for a couple of years and served Newport Beach for a couple of years straight. And like I said, I had a VW van, so every weekend I'd always take off and go do a weekend trip down to San Diego or up north to Santa Barbara, Rincon, various beaches, depending on you know, if it's summer or winter. Yeah, so you got like really active in that scene for a little while then, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, living in Southern California, 20 minutes from Malibu Beach. You know, and at one point, I, you know, my parents had a condo you know, right in the county line. 
and I got a, you know, my first job out of high school was flipping burgers at the line shack, which was a hamburger stand on PCH, uh, right across from Neptune's net. It's no longer there. So people don't even have any idea. There used to be a hamburger stand and the owners, uh, Ray Gann and Clark Merritt, and they built a surf shop alongside of it as well, uh, Pacific Vision Surfboards. So yeah, I, I, you know, it was the job of the year for sure. You know, you yeah. get two surf breaks, paid cash, and hamburger meal for free every day. Yeah, I think I remember you sharing that story with me before. Like, yeah, you get to flip burgers, get get fed, and then on lunch break, get to go hit the waves. Exactly. Nice. And then, uh, you know, as uh, that went on, uh, you know, like, I think some of your top three things that uh, I recall talking to you about were like, you know, surfing, sunshine, and, and, and women. Uh, wow. you know, as you started growing, getting older there, you know, what was that, that a whole, uh, culture like in that scene, uh, back in that day? Well, I mean, it was just, a, there was a great beach scene, you know, I mean, there was a lot of private beaches still there, a lot of private surf spots that nobody really knew about spots that you said you used to have to hike down to, you know, and then you tell a couple of girls about it and then they'd bring all their girlfriends and watch the surfers. Um, so, you know, it's just, I, it was all just part of this summer scene then brought in, you know, to the winter. Um, we served through the winter as well, but uh, it was just a great lifestyle. You know, Malibu down there was just, uh, you know, Malibu, Topanga, all the beaches, and the county line, staircase, zeros. It had some great, great times down there, great memories. Nice, yeah. And then, um, you know, uh, back to like some of the, uh, uh biking and stuff you you did uh like i mean even you know you would go from surfing and then you'd get into the the biking let's talk a little bit about uh some of the when you got into mountain biking and yeah i got into mountain biking well because when mountain bikes first came out somewhere around 83 84 i'm thinking um by 84 i had my first uh schwinn high sierra i think there was schwinns and stump jumpers that was the only thing and then once that started to come out, I'm thinking, man, I've got to start. I've got to really get into this deep because, you know, since I used to BMX race, I could, I know, this, you know, they're, they're starting to race with the uh, mountain bikes. And uh, so I started really practicing hard. I you know, go to work every day and come home and ride, well, ride in the morning before I went to work, come home and ride in the afternoons again. And uh, just really build myself up. And then that was like, uh, I mean, you, you kind of were competitive with, with, with both of those? You actually competed for a while? I didn't compete in the mountain biking yet, no. I was just preparing mm -hmm. to, uh, it really, because it was just getting started. Uh, and then I ended up having a, 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 a bad accident. Uh, in yeah, I, and, you know, I wanted to get into, into that and, uh, you know, that part of your story. But, like, real quick, when you were doing the BMX in, though, that was competitive. So, yeah, competitive. Yeah. I did the BMX competitive, but yeah, at uh, uh, Chestworth Park South, we used to, the uh, Devonshire Division Police Department used to put on races every other Saturday. So I used to race BMX bicycle, and I also had a side hat car. My buddy Ray was the peddler, and I was the monkey. I was the one pushing the sides and throwing my weight side to side to keep the, the third wheel down. So, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was great. It was very competitive. It was, you know, it was, it was, I mean, it was an active time back then for kids. I mean, there was no way we spent any time in the house. There's no computers, no computer games, stuff like that. We were outside every day practicing and uh, 
you know, and, and building bikes and trying to build them lighter and faster, you know, taking them apart, just tearing them down, building them back up. You know, like I said, also, you know, repainting all the time too. Uh, and that was part of your, like, uh, where some of your art creativity would come into play too. You would add your own personal touches to it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I do different fades on the paints and different things. Um, you know, tape it off different you know, combinations of colors and stuff like that. And then, like I said, you know, then do some sort of reupholstered seat to match it to the front and, uh, different things like that. Nice. And, uh, going back to what you, know, you were referring to, you know, you started getting, uh, into the mountain biking and then, uh, you know, unfortunately that's when, uh, you, you suffered that accident. Uh, you want to share a little bit about that, that story? Yeah, it was, uh, March 10th, 1985, real sunny day. I went for a bike ride that morning, came home, got my VW van. I had a 1963 VW split window van. Went and had breakfast in the kitchen at my dad's restaurant. Drove out to Malibu. Went to my friend's surf, surf shop, Zuma J. Talked to him for a while about getting a new board and stuff. And then uh, came back home and then decided to go for one more ride with a friend of mine. And we were headed towards uh, Bell Canyon, taking a shortcut across the kind of construction line where there's going to build, build uh, new houses. So there's a dirt lot, a slope, a dirt lot, and a slope, which I'd gone down a week and a half prior to, and it was all slopes. So I went down the first uh, slope and then across the second lot, down the second slope, across the third lot. And what should have been a third slope was five and a half feet straight down and about four feet out and two feet up to build a retaining wall. And all of a sudden I got there and just caught me by surprise. I said, oh, my God, this is going to be a bad one. And all of a sudden I, you know, I went to push my front end down because, you know, I was already too late to try to pull up. And uh, it hit my head. And as soon as I hit my head, I died. Immediately, as I was up in the clouds looking down at my body. I was going, oh, my God, I'm, I'm dead. It's my time to go. I could see the, my body laying there motionless. I saw the wheels of the uh, bicycle spinning, and I wasn't in it. I was not in my body. I was going farther and farther away. I thought, God, please don't take me now. Give me another chance. As soon as I said that little prayer, I came right back into my body. I'm laying there completely motionless, had no idea where my legs were. Didn't really feel any pain. Could only shrug my shoulders up and down like this. And uh, saw my wrist was kind of laying limp. I thought, damn, that's not a broken wrist. I don't feel any pain. I'm, I'm paralyzed. I'm still going to die. I mean, my lungs will probably fill with fluid, and I'll, you know, and I'll drown in my own fluid. And a buddy of mine, Dave, was about 20 yards behind me. So when he got to me, I said, hey, Dave, don't move me. Don't move me. I said, I broke my neck. Nah, nah, you broke your collarbone. You broke your collarbone. I said, no, I broke my neck. Go hike up to a house, call the paramedics, and call my parents. So he called both people, you know, the paramedics and my parents' house. And my mother, I could hear a horn honking within minutes. And I said, Dave, go find me that. That's my mom's horn. Go find her and bring her to us. And he did. And she's an ex-Marine. She just kind of lost it a little bit. But, you know, she kept me pretty calm. And then, uh, you know, waited for the paramedics to show up. I could tell them what I could feel, what I couldn't. And then they taped me to a board that it would be uh, less traumatic to fly me out of there than drive me out of there. And uh, so that's what they did. They flew me over to Northridge Hospital. Where I was met on the roof, they, you know, cut my clothes off me in the ER and taking x-rays and IVs and all kinds of monitors and telling me I needed to uh, put a trach in because I was not going to be able to breathe. I broke my neck at C4-5. And I refused the trach and they thought, well, you'll, you'll never make it through the night. They called the priest in to give me my last rites. I'm thinking, nah, if I made it through the day, God's not going to let me go through the night. 
And so I still continue to refuse that, the breathing treatment, the, uh, the tracheotomy. But then they wanted me to do breathing treatments for the next, you know, every two hours. And I'm thinking, ah, that's, you know, if I get, you know, pneumonias for old man, how am I going to catch pneumonia? I'm 24 years old in great shape. So like I said, I've been riding every morning and every afternoon after work. And uh, so I didn't really take the breathing treatment seriously. Within a week, I caught pneumonia. My left lung collapsed. I was really, literally fighting for every breath I took for the next 19 days while I was in intensive care. You know, they put, put my head in traction the first night for like seven nights. And then they put, uh, put a halo on the following Saturday. And every time they would sit me up, my neck was still slipping when they would take an x-ray. So they said, look, you know, you got pneumonia really bad. You're not going to beat this thing. You know, it's going to kill you if we don't get you sitting up straight. So I could only sit at about an 80 degree angle because I was uh, really lightheaded. I'd pass out and stuff. My blood pressure still today is only 70 over 40. So anyway, so then they, um, um, they did a fusion on my neck. I went into surgery. They uh, put some screws in my neck, took some uh, bone pieces off my left hip and fused four, five, six, and seven together. So my level of injury is four, five, and six, but I've got some C6 function. I've got a little bit of wrist function here, you know, where I can move my wrist, um, which allows me to pick stuff up, you know, just because of the pressure, like a pen or a paper, you know, chapstick pen, piece of paper. Um, but it's, you know, it gives me a little more independence, which is awesome, you know. I mean, I just really fought, for, like I said, every breath I took, and I, I fought like it was like I was in a competition during that next six months in Northridge Hospital. And I got exposed to, you know, they were trying to teach me how to paint with a mouse stick at that point. And I was also doing some, you know, ceramic work and stuff like that. But the mouse stick thing just was not fluid for me. I know there's a lot of great mouse stick artists out there like Johnny Erickson and stuff. And I knew of Johnny's work before I even had my injury. And, uh, but it just wasn't fluid. So I kind of just didn't do anything artistically for quite a while. You know, and it was just focusing on getting better for the next two years and then got a you know small part-time job working for science diet dog food right after i got my first service dog with weaver yeah so that was like uh um part of your therapy they wanted you to get in uh, art to as right. part of your recovery like and uh you didn't i mean and, and art was already uh, a passion of yours you didn't want to do the uh you know uh paint with your your mouth but uh as i mean at first i wanted to touch on like you know just the the fighting to to get through that uh period but then as you started recovering what was the acceptance phase like for you you know for this is this is life now well i accepted it right away because like i said when you die and you get a second chance, you get pretty grateful right away, you know. And yeah. the other thing was, I was in there with 13 other people with spinal cord injury. One guy was drunk, jumped off a roof that into a shallow pool. One guy was in a car with a drunk driver on high school graduation night. So he's blaming himself and blaming the driver. Another girl was in a car, a girl I happened to know. We went to Pepperdine together. Uh, her uh, friend fell asleep at the wheel. And they went off a of PCH, and she ended up breaking her neck. So, and then another guy was 13. And his, his friends thought it'd be funny if they loosened the front tire on his bicycle. Front tire fell off and broke his neck that way. I mean, I didn't have anybody to blame. I didn't have to thank God for. And it wasn't an accident. I wasn't high on drugs. I wasn't drunk. 
you know, had nothing to do with any of that stuff. So it made it easier to accept. And then getting a second chance, like I said, in life, you know, you just, I just started being grateful for everything I, I still had. And I just had to fo put the focus on that. I didn't really think I'd be paralyzed forever when the doctors were telling me, ah, you know, I'm going to get a miracle by the time I, six months comes. I says, and I broke my neck March 10th. And when they were telling me I wasn't going to be surfing that summer, I'm thinking, no, I'll, I'll be out here before summer. I've got to surf this summer. And all of a sudden that started playing. You know, I spent the hospital, spent every night at the hospital, you know, all of March, all of April, May, June, July, August. I got out late August, you know. And it got this set, this set in that it was pretty real, plus nobody else was. But one or two people end up walking out of there. But uh, that wasn't my fate, you know. But uh, I've been blessed. I, you know, had good insurance at the time, had a great family, a lot of support, a lot of friends that were, you know, coming to visit me on a daily basis. And, uh, like I said, I used to be competitive, so I just had to take this to another level of being in a competition and just trying to get better for myself. Yeah, you know, I, and um, I mean, it's, it's your your faith I, I, through this, uh, through getting to know you it has always been, I found, you know, been such an inspiration to me, uh, you know, when I'm getting those woes, me's and stuff like that, you know, and then I get to, you know, get a chance to talk with you and how you're able to, you know, share your experience and everything. Um, you, it, it seems like, I mean, after, like you said, after having God given you that second chance, he wasn't just going to give you that second chance and, and let it be wasted. So um, you get that second chance and you keep this, this, this gratitude and this positive attitude, but let's talk about, you know, um, you know, you're getting out, this is a part of your life and you're out and then you get into, um, back into the, the world and then, you know, kind of like the party scene. Well, I was 28 days sober at the time I broke my neck. I had already stopped partying because I was going to school for Nick Harris Detective Academy. I had uh, one day left to finish before I broke my neck. I broke my neck on a Sunday. My final day of school was going to be that Tuesday. So... I, you know, I, you know, before I got out of school, I said, you know, I've got to just stop partying, you know, I do a lot of cocaine and, you know, hang out at the bars quite a bit, you know, you know, and I put all that to an end and uh, like I said, it was 20 days sober and happened. So I continued to that, that path, you know, guys would bring meetings to me at the restaurant, a lot of support I mean, at the hospital, you know, and uh, stayed, stayed really positive that way, you know, but then all of a sudden when I wasn't working 15, 16 months later, I'm running out of money. Well, maybe I could do a little cocaine and sobriety. So I started getting, you know, dealing. And I started feeling guilty after a month. And next thing you know, I'm using again and partying like crazy and selling kilos of cocaine. And I don't know, about seven, eight months later, come March 3rd, I'm surrounded by 17 FBI agents. Uh, and I'm getting arrested for two kilos of cocaine conspiracy on to, to uh, distribute 20 on a bi-monthly basis to this person. So I ended up getting six months of house arrest, five years probation, uh, 40 years suspended sentence. Uh, it was pretty much of a nightmare at that point. I had to move from where I was in the valley to L.A. Um, to, uh, you know, get, get a new new P.O. And there's some, a lot of craziness went on at that point. But then. Uh, yeah. yeah, you would, uh, you know, you shared, uh, like I said, I've, I've heard some of your story before, but. Um, you know, I always was curious, like, you know, 
I mean, you're in a, you're in a wheelchair and then you're dealing like, was it like, kind of like no one's going to ever suspect, you know, me, you know? Yeah, that's what I kind of thought, but you know, plus, uh, you know, I, um, she's a housekeeper. Just text me and say, she's here. She's going to walk through here in a minute. Um, All right. yeah, I did. I thought nobody's going to suspect me. I thought, you know, this is, um, you know, but I, but then I, you know, started partying. I didn't really care about anything at that point. You know, I started hanging out with lots of girls and just partying and thinking I was really enjoying life once again, you know, like, I, okay, I got, I got a great life back in, you know, but it was just a, you know, it was all a lie. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, how, um, our false, false self worth or ego starts creeping in, especially, you know, when we're, when we're using and, right. uh, you know, we just start thinking we're invincible, invincible once again, even in your situation, you, you know, had, right. had that come back. And then, um, you know, I mean, so that's how we became friends, you know, um, through both being in, in, uh, in recovery. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, when, um, you know, after that incident, when, when you, you, you were on probation, the, the FBI rated you, like, what was your turning point then to turn things around? Well, I just, you know, got sick and tired. I mean, I just, you know, I, I well, from that point on, I was in and out of the program for 20 years. I could get a year, two, three, and four. But I was still doing, you know, crazy stuff. I was still doing some ungodly behaviors. I was still hanging out in nightclubs, you know, after meetings and going, you know, with sober guys and going to strip clubs and just hanging out with all the wrong people. But then the guilt and the shame behind that stuff would, eventually take me out again. You know, I could get a year, I could get two, I could get three. I could even get four years sober, you know, off and on, like I said, for a 20 year period. And then I started partying again one more time and then started smoking cocaine really bad. I was spending all night, all day in the house here, you know, and then I was still in contact with my sober buddies. And then one buddy, one day, my buddy, uh, Mike, that's what said, hey, you know, I've been talking to my friend Dallas and a couple other guys. That, he wants you to give him a call. And I knew who Dallas was through program, and I also knew through his music. And I thought, you know what? There's somebody that doesn't even know me from Adam. I, I want him at least to, to, the phone call um, to say, yeah, hang on one second. The housekeeper's going to walk by. Are you going to be able to stop this for a second and edit it? Uh, not, probably not, but it's all right. Okay. Um. Anyway, so the housekeeper's going to walk in. I'm just going to tell him. She's All right, we'll get a cameo from the housekeeper. There we go. Um. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, like, um, so you give Dallas a call. And, yeah. uh, and, and you know, it's funny, too. I wanted to touch on, you know. And my housekeeper's walking through. Yeah, right. It's okay. Come on through, and then uh, you can just start on that side of the house. And like we, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was Thursday. even in, even in, in recovery, you know, well, there's still like people, places and things, you know, right. We, even with our, our sober group, you know, there's still people, places and things and who you run with, you know, kind of dictates how well you're going to do. And I, and I've, 
you know, I've been in that same situation, like you said, and like, it's just a matter of time, you know, but, uh, so that you give, you decide to give Dallas a call and then let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I give Dallas a call and just, you know, like I said, I'm thinking, Hey, if this guy cares about me, doesn't know who I am. At least the oh, my phone call saying thanks, but no thanks. I know 10 minutes in the conversation, he says, well, do you have a sponsor? I said, no, not at the time, not at this time. He said, what do you do now? I want you to show up at my house tomorrow at two o'clock. For some reason, I said, okay, I'll be there. And I showed up at this house at 2 o'clock the following day. And, you know, 15 minutes in the conversation, he's telling me, tell me about your sex life. And, and sex life, what kind of freaky guy is this? But, you know, we just started talking about, you know, going to strip clubs and doing different crazy things and ungodly behaviors. And he said, if you stop that type of behavior and we get that out of your life and you just make a lot of changes, you know, you'll stay sober. And uh, so I trusted him, you know. And then he invited me back to his house that following Sunday for a men's group and then introduced me to a, you know, a men's stag group where everybody had to share. Just going around the room going, oh my God, everybody here's got to share, you know, can't hide the corner. And then invited me back again on a Monday night for another men's stag, which was just a room of remarkable people um, with long-term sobriety, a couple of newcomers, but uh, just real stable guys, you know, and then they had started that meeting in Dallas's uh, hospital room when he was getting a liver transplant. So it's just a solid group of guys that really cared and just all they cared about was helping you get through what you need to get through to stay sober one more day. And I just really, you know, gave it a hundred percent really trusted God was going to speak to Dallas to speak to me and anything he asked me to do, whether it was in the big book or not, I'd be willing to do it. So that's what I did, you know, and uh, did, did everything he asked me to do really worked the thorough steps and, you know, and took, took uh, commandments and meetings and really got involved with men's groups. And it was a game changer for me. You know? Yeah, and once you followed his advice, that's when it really started uh, changing yeah. for you then. Yeah, you know, if, if you really trust God to have you know, be speaking through somebody that you trust, it's going to work, you know. Um, and that's what I had to do. You know, so, you know I've, I've had a changed life ever since then. I've you know, I finally got back into art and, you know, I, I was already painting, you know, quite a few years ago, 23 years ago. So I, you know, as my first service dog got older, I kept thinking one day I'm going to roll through a puddle of paint and have the dog walk through a puddle alongside of me so that we could go across the board together and uh, create a painting so that uh, I'd have a memory of he and I other than just a photograph. And I've got that painting, not this one behind me, but on the wall to my left. And, uh, so that's it, you know. I mean, that's how that, that the whole art thing got started for me back once again. Um, yeah, that was uh, Weaver then, your, your original yeah, service dog. my first uh, about a 90-pound full and, yellow and, Labrador dog. And, yeah, uh, and, and Weaver kind of was uh, – kind of helped you pick your your way, your unique way of doing art then? Kind of inspired that? or Yeah, God used the dog to get me back into it, you know. Otherwise, I never would have had any reason to – think, hey, I'm going to paint with the tires of my chair. Why would I want a reminder of my accident in my wheelchair on a daily basis? But also when God showed me the, the love that I have for that dog and the, the, how that dog really got me more independence and got me more freedom. And, you know, me and my buddy Mike, who I mentioned earlier, you know, we started going to all every major sporting event you could imagine. We went to Final Four playoff games together, the Final Four final game um, uh, up in uh, Seattle. We went to a World Cup at the 
in 94, I believe it was, in uh, the Rose Bowl with all six games in the final game there. Been to a couple of World Series, one with the Dodgers and one with the Angels. Um, Super Bowl, uh, just everything. So just and then and that dog was there to accompany, accompany me in in all those events. So you know, every time I look at that painting, it just reminds me of, you know, what a great time I had with that dog. And you know, that dog lived to be uh, 15 and a half. He was together with me a little over 13 and a half years. Uh, which that's you know, and you kind of knew it. It's his time was coming up, and that's what inspired you guys. Yeah. to do that. Yeah art together and that's when i realized hey, when i can use the tires of my chair yeah and i just started creating on a daily basis after work at a place where i was selling wheelchair accessible vans at the time so i'd gotten to that that was my final meal my, my last job before getting into painting full-time and creating art and doing gallery shows and, and, uh, and, and that um i mean that's you know like a your unique way of creating art then that took off because of that um like you said god using you know uh weaver to help inspire that but also god kind of you know continuing to use you know your accident and what happened to you you know what what with the with the other some of the other mindsets of the other patients that you uh had experienced the same thing that you you were with you know you're what, what could bring somebody down and just be, you know, depressing and a, a, a depressing reminder you've used now as art to inspire positive messages for other people that enjoy your art that now, you know, you're spreading positivity through your art now. Right. And uh, like what it has been like, uh, and, and the other thing is like your art so unique that uh, you can't really replicate any pieces. Everything is a new creation. Right. Yeah, there's and, no uh, way you could replicate, you know, part with the tires of the chair. Which yeah. Is a good thing, you know. I mean, with AI and everything else out there now, and everybody's, you know, stealing everything. It's it's it'd be very very tough to recreate my my style, my type. I mean, I have taught quite a few kids how to paint with the tires of their chair. Um, you know, some art class back in England and these little kids are, you know, using their tricycles and bicycles and stuff. You know, they call it the Tommy Hollenstein art class. It's just <laughs> cute. It's great. You know, it's inspired a lot of kids. And, you know, I get the opportunity every um, January to go down to the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. And there's a um, disability awareness weekend. And uh, I do two classes each you know, on, Saturday, on Saturday and on Sunday where we have kids in wheelchairs sign up to take one of my art classes and they all go home with a 12 inch by 12 inch panel that they created and painted by themselves. So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to see the joy in their face and kids getting creative from being kids. Yeah. Let's talk about more a little bit about the, some of the opportunities now that you've been given to uh, inspire other people uh, with your, your art and um, just your story. You want me to bring some of the opportunities up, or did you? Have um, yeah, like uh, I mean, what uh, you know, you mentioned what you do with the kids, but uh, like, what other opportunities ha have you had to, to uh, 
you know, inspire others and, and share through your art? Well, I've met a lot of musicians. Um, you know, Slash was one of the first ones to show up at one of my shows one time. And I delivered a painting to his house and we became really good friends and kept that friendship all the way till today. Um, even with his kids, I've watched them grow up and stuff. You know, and I got introduced to the other various musicians and stuff, and they, they, they tend to like the art. And so I've been I have an opportunity to meet a lot of people I would not otherwise, you know, I mean, various people throughout the, all over the world. You know, I've done shows here in L.A., Phoenix, Seattle, New York. I've shipped, I've shipped art all over the world. You know, one of the, the biggest opportunities, the most rewarding opportunities I ever got was I did a show at the Boston Children's Hospital with terminally ill kids. They flew me out there for about five days or so, and I did two days of painting with kids. And wow, I mean, those are terminally ill kids that, you know, a lot of them have already passed away from, from that point. Um, and just watching them coming in to do their chemotherapy and, you know, painting during the day, and I'd go visit them at night, and the, the girls would have their wigs off and laying on the nightstands next to them. And just, just watching those kids fight, you know, and we like, you know, I got to do a big painting where they all got to participate as well. And they also each got to take a painting home. So, you know, opportunities like that just to, you know, just are amazing. It's just, uh, it's a real blessing. You know, um, God's opened a lot of doors for me that I definitely could not open for myself. And a lot of opportunities to bring joy that uh, real meaningful joy, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. In that area. For sure. And then, um, you know, uh, Let's talk about, you know, some of your, like, art shows that you have, like, uh, um, there locally. Um, how are those events usually go? And what, what got you, uh, you know, when you first started getting into the doing the art shows? What was that process like? Well, it was an unorthodox process that I went through to get that first show. I started showing up at galleries with my artwork and talking to different people. Some people would slam the door on me. Some people would talk to me and say, no, nah, well, that's... You, know, you got to submit through a website and different things. And then all of a sudden I went local to a high-end gallery in Calabasas. I think it was back in 2005. And the lady really liked the art. And she said, all right, let's, let me go pick up my calendar. Let's pick out a day. And I had I sold nine paintings that night. You know, at least expensive painting was about $1,600 that night. And it really gave me a boost of confidence saying, okay, I can really do this. You know. And then from that point on, I just started hosting other shows. You know, showing with a track record that I had that I could sell art. And other galleries would start taking me along. And I did a lot of submitting over line, over computers and different things and different shows and museums and, and uh, universities, stuff like that. I mean, it's a hard hustle, but it's uh, it pans out, you know. And then when we got into COVID, you know, during lockdown, it was kind of everything shut down. There was an uh, app called Clubhouse. Where I was, it was like a private app. You have to be invited. Somebody invited me on. And I met people from all over the world on a daily basis. Some of us were on there like 15, 16 hours a day. Different yeah. art groups. You could sign up for, you know, whatever different interests you had. There was a room going on for that, sometimes up to 3,000 people. And that's where I first got introduced to NFTs and, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club and all the different things. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I even created. I haven't uh, dropped it yet. My own NFT project, which was a uh, 20 foot by 400 foot painting, a thousand panels that were 24 inches by 48 inches. I did 100 panels at a time, brought that last row to the front, started with another 100 panels, and then you know started with the same four colors. And that first group of 100, 
and added another color each group of 100 so we came up with like a little over at the very end low over 17 uh, colors on the last group but it went you know four colors five colors six colors and uh, so hopefully that project will drop sometime in 2024 because after the crash of crypto and stuff it, we just didn't quite time it All right. <laughs> but yeah, i remember you 20 foot by 400 foot painting you know yeah, I remember you uh, sharing with with us about uh, when you were working on that, and uh, you know, you mentioned you know like how uh, during COVID you got you know on the clubhouse, and I know that that was kind of when we got introduced as well because we had Zoom, and right. you know what was like, I mean, what was a time of uh, a lot of uncertainty, and and I know a lot of uh, you know. Uh, brothers and sisters that you know we lost because they they went back out you know and and um i don't know it was i i look back at it as like a blessing you know because i was able to meet so many people and connect with so many people like yourself that i would never have you know had the opportunity to form relationships with and uh even during that time it's like i've shared with people before it's like you know both my daughters are young women and they got their own lives and they're running around with their friends. So I don't get to spend as much time with them as I used to. But during that time, it's like we got to rekindle our relationship and, and uh, you know, spend more time together again. So, you know, I look back at, you know, it, it goes back to that mindset, like you were talking about with the other people in, in the hospital, too. Right. Just like, is this a blessing or am I going to let this be, you know, drag me down? And and I tend to be that guy a lot of times that goes to that that lets it spin and spin uh, into the hole, and uh, you know that's why I'm I'm so grateful to have guys like you in my life to to remind me. And I've been working on that and getting better with like looking at the positive, being more grateful for the the things you know, like that experience. Um, I know also like I've read that uh, there's this place, the Dream Center that you've done right. shows with or associated with. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a church downtown LA that I've been involved with about 27 years, 28 years maybe, since the onset. Um, it's a uh, it's an old Queen of Angels hospital. But I, I started at the Dream Center. I was at a, a Christian conference, 90s, sometime in the 90s, 95, 94. And, uh, and I'm at the school there that um, her cousin had just started a church in downtown L.A. called the Dream Center. It's in a small building. So I met her there one day, and there were some guys in wheelchairs there, like six guys, and they were taking them to a basketball um, practice afterwards. And meanwhile, this church really has a heart for disabled. So I really started going back every Thursday night and every Sunday. And then said, hey, we're buying this building. Why don't you come check it out? And I saw that they had a gymnasium there. I thought, wow, I could bring those guys. Instead of having to drive them to Pasadena, we could do it our own wheelchair ministry out of here. So I got involved with that church right away, right when it was first moving to that building. And since it's been all remodeled, it's uh, they've got about 750 people living on campus. Um, they got a, one floor for homeless uh, families to live there free of charge. They got a floor for homeless men. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, homeless vets, men and women. And they've got a computer lab for them. We've got a floor for... Uh, uh, men coming off of drugs and alcohol, it's a one-year program minimum. You can stick around two years and even go into leadership at the third year. They got the same for women. Uh, you got emancipated minors home because they were out of 
you know, pulled out of the foster care system at the end. Uh, that's a two-year program. They've got, you know, uh, a thrift store there that's free for the, the community to come, you know, get clothes if they need it, some, you know, suits and stuff for that that they might need for an interview. Um, people come there and eat on a daily basis. During COVID, they're serving three hot meals a day in a drive through breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 2,500 people a day. Uh, they still have, you know, uh, food trucks that leave there uh, on a daily basis, about 30 trucks a day, go out and deliver food to the community. It was just amazing. It's what a church should be doing. Yeah. You know, especially with that drug and alcohol program. They just did their big gift giveaway with 2,500 bicycles and, I don't know, 20,000 toys or something for the kids over the weekend. Saturday night, and, you know, they had it all set up and lights and games and Ferris wheels and dance contests. And it's just beautiful what they do there. They do tutoring for kids the whole bit. So it's just, I, you know, I've been involved there, like I said, like 27, 28 years now. And uh, it's just, that changed my life, you know, seeing seeing um, a group of people that are so giving and, and so honest. I mean, if there was a dream center in every little city across America, there'd be no homeless, there'd be way less homeless, probably 3%, 4% with the drug addicts and stuff because they give them an opportunity to really rebuild their lives and not just giving them a home and a free place to live. They're, you know, teaching them and, and, and educating them, and, you know, and also teaching them, you know, Bible verses and, you know, a strong relationship with God, which is what you're going to need to, to stay sober for a lifetime. So it's really about building that relationship with God and keeping that on a daily basis and really putting God first in everything you do. And that, that that's definitely being a service, you know, that church is definitely uh, yeah, uh, being of service. And, you know, um, I mean, that's like, like I said, one of the biggest inspirations that, you know, I get every time I, I, I talk with you or, uh, you know, hear, hear, hear you share is uh, just how, how strong your faith is, you know, and uh, it sounds like Dream Center has been like a big, big part of the growth of that, you know, and how you live, live your life today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, They've been a very big part. I'm very grateful for them. It's just amazing what an 18-year-old kid came down and did in you know, the last 27, 28 years. And it's just grown bigger and bigger on a daily basis. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, before we get ready and wrap up and stuff, let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, your how your how much your faith has grown. What, what else, you know, I mean, you've already, you know, you you died and God gave you this second chance, but like, how many other like miracles and blessings have you experienced or witnessed on your journey? Countless. I mean, I'm sometimes even on a daily basis. I mean, just you know, I mean, through myself, through watching others, watching others growth. You know, just I mean, I see God do things for people that you know, unimaginable. I just, it's just, it's you know, if you really have your eyes open. You really pay attention to all the little things around you. There's miracles happening around us on a daily basis. Like I said, you know, just, you know, even like during COVID, I mean, for a guy like myself with a compromised lung condition, I've only got 37% lung condition, lung capacity rather. You know, I've gone through COVID three times. Thank God I never took that jab because I know a lot of people that had a lot of health complications after that. But, you know, yeah. and be able to stay healthy and just, uh, Trust God, to, you know, to get you through anything. Um, yeah, it's like he's brought you through all this already. It's like, you know, what yeah. won't he bring you through, you know? And exactly. obviously still 
still got so much, uh, you know, p work for you left to do here, man. And oh yeah, I know. Like I said, every every time I I, I mean, I'm trying to get all choked up here, but uh, you know, I just know how much you mean to me. And every time I talk to you, man, how much you inspire me, and I'm just so grateful and blessed to call you a friend today. And um, appreciate what that. do you continue to do? to uh you know for your spiritual maintenance well every morning the first thing i said you know as soon as i wake up and say thank you god for the day we're checking love and serve you you know please help me stay sober today and, and i i do some readings on a daily basis the first thing in the morning i really talk to god i got to do that before i can do any emails texting any even checking my emails or texting you know i've got to put god first and then uh move about my day and then just trust God, you know, and expect something. I go to bed every night. So, all right, God, what, what do you got? What big surprise you got for me tomorrow? Listen, man, let's do something big. And uh, you just never know what what's going to happen. I mean, I've been out at lunch sometimes. I, you know, especially on a hot day here in the valley, I'll, you know, I'll paint in the morning, get a little overheated, drive 20 minutes to Malibu, eat some lunch out there, meet some people, get into somebody who, who, you know, not having a good day, and just get to talk to them, encourage them. You just never know, you know, so God's working. On a daily basis, if you just keep your eyes open, you know, um, I'm looking forward to the new year. You know, we're coming to the end of the year here. I mean, I mean, it's, my motto for this year is, you know, more in 24. And I'm expecting God to do big things, you know, more shows, more art shows, more, you know, people that uh, reach out and need help and get need to get introduced to uh, either a church or sobriety, anything. Um, I just have this hope to have my eyes and ears open yeah amen and uh before we get ready and wrap up i got a couple questions that i normally ask my guests uh, i'd like sure. to ask you um who are three people who've inspired you and you can credit for making you the person you are today my dad my family my mom uh, the church and god Amen. Yeah. And then uh when when you know God does finally call you home, um, what would you want your legacy to be? You know, how would you want to be remembered? Wow. I thought about that. Um that I was a giver, you know. That I was always um willing to give of my time, my resources, my friendship. My love. Yeah, definitely. And are there any causes or organizations that, that you support and encourage other people to check out? Um, well, Canine Companions for Independence. That's where I got my service dog. They're all over the country here. Um, Triumph Foundation, which is a spinal cord injury foundation. I'm getting ready to go to their Christmas party in a couple hours today at Northridge Hospital. They, they're very involved with the Southern California spinal cord area. They do sporting events. They do um, uh, mentoring. They show up at the hospital on a daily basis for people that new, are newly injured and talk to them, introduce them to support groups, and just do whatever we can. You know, I've been trying to do as much as I can to help the uh, founder, Andrew Skinner, uh, build that as much as I can as well. And then any uh, message you have for our military members currently serving overseas? 
Just stay strong, man. Trust God. Thank you for your service. My mother was a Marine. Um, she was a station over in Hawaii for five years back in the 50s. Um, but, yeah, just stay strong and trust God. And, you know, um, that's it. You know? yeah, I think all the all the times that we we've we've shared, I think that's the uh, this is the first time I found out that uh, your mother was a Marine, too. It's, oh, wow. That's awesome. My, uh, you know, because I told you, I think my, that my dad, you know, he was a World War II Marine on the invasion of Okinawa and stuff. So both raised by Marines. <laughs> exactly. She was tough. And then, they made a good and then yeah. And, and then, um, like, for uh, anybody that, uh, you know, any of the audience that's, like, watching and getting to hear your story and know about you for the first time, and want to like support your art and check out your art and you know uh you know what you have going forward where would you send them go to my instagram tommy holland at tommy hollenstein or my my website tommyhollenstein.com facebook tommy hollenstein i'm on all the platforms tiktok the whole bit but everything's under tommy hollenstein nice and then Tommy, I forget what was the you know I, I I remember there was like a little mini documentary about you that uh, was on Vimeo um, that I got to watch that was very inspiring that I would definitely encourage people to check out. But I forgot what the name of that was. It was called Rise. Uh, if you Google my name, you might find it there. I'm not sure, okay. but if you put Tommy Hollenstein, a lot of stuff will come up. Watch the one that says Boston Children's Hospital or the water skiing one. There's a lot of fun little videos out there um, that have been different interviews and TV shows and TV newscasts. And, yeah. Yeah. I like to uh, see when I was uh, looking at, at some of the older stuff, I definitely liked the, the ones back when you were sporting the Mohawk too. <laughs> you like that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> man, Tommy, you know, thank you so much for your time, man. It's always a pleasure uh, talking to you. You, I'm so blessed to to have you part of my life today, and uh, you know you mean the world to me, man. And I appreciate you taking the time today to do this with me. Absolutely, I appreciate it, Bill. You know, cherish our friendship. I'm glad I got to do this, and uh, hopefully, it reaches a lot of people. You know? Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. And then, uh, you know, uh, hopefully in 2024, you know, I'll get to come out there to California and, and meet you in person, see Absolutely. some of the artwork. Wait for this rain to go away. Get some warm weather. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, and then real quick before I let you go, one last favor. Do you mind cutting a promo ID for me? Just introduce yourself and you're listening to today's boondoggle. Yeah. Uh, this is Tommy Hollenstein. You're listening to today's boondoggle with Bill and Tom. Awesome. Tommy, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. And uh, Thank you. Have a good time at your uh, party tonight. I will. It's going to be this afternoon. Yeah, it should be a good group of guys. Last year, we had about 63 guys in girls in wheelchairs. That's pretty, pretty interesting. Wow. Wow, that's amazing, man. Well, thanks again. Thanks again for your time and, you. and all you do, man, and, and we'll be in touch. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye.